Good morning. Can I thank you again for the opportunity to worship with you? And thank you for the warm welcome I always receive when I come. Um, last week, Mo and Sarah were with me, and I'm sorry to say they weren't able to come this morning. But Sarah it was at a wedding on Friday. She was in ordination for a couple of hours yesterday, and by the time we got her home last night, we kind of realized that maybe in another service this morning was going to be just that one too many. As we come to worship the Lord, let's just turn for the moment to Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, and there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. This is from the same psalm we read last week. This is someone who comes to the Lord out of devotion. They desire to do what is right, but they know that their life isn't right. They know that they don't get it right sometimes, but they can still come to the Lord. When we come here on a Sunday morning, we come for many different reasons. It may be out of devotion. It may be because it's a place that you find peace and fellowship. But when we gather, we gather knowing that there is one who is greater than we are. We gather knowing that there is one who knows more and is able to do far more than we can imagine. But we also gather knowing that in all his might and power, all his might and power, with all his righteousness, we gather because he loves us, because he humbled himself for our sake, and because he has made a promise, and he has fulfilled it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord of all righteousness, in whom is all truth, we gather here, drawn together by your Spirit, and in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we gather, may we find the refuge in you that we seek. May the peace that has eluded us at times in this last week be restored this morning. May our security in you be strengthened and our hearts and minds cleared of any frustration. Lord, may we find in you the answers that we seek. Yet most of all, may we know your presence and your love in our lives this day. May you be exalted in our worship and glorified in our praise. Amen. Now let us listen for the word of God through scripture. First from the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus. The Lord told Moses to say to the community of Israel, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you harvest your fields, do not cut the grain at the edges of the fields, and do not cut back the heads of the grain that were left. Do not go back through the vineyard to gather the grapes that were missed, or to pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for poor people, And for foreigners, I am the Lord your God. Do not steal or cheat 
or lie. Do not make a promise in my name if you do not intend to keep it. That brings disgrace in my name. I am the Lord your God. Do not rob or take advantage of anyone. Do not hold back the wages of someone you have hired, not even for one night. Do not curse the deaf or put something in front of the blind so as to make them stumble over it. Obey me. I am the Lord your God. Be honest and just when you make decisions in legal cases. Do not show favoritism to the poor or fear the rich. Do not spread lies about anyone. And when someone is in trial for his life, speak out if your testimony can help him. I am the Lord. Do not bear a grudge against others, but settle your differences with them so that you may not commit a sin because of them. Do not take revenge on others or continue to hate them, but love your neighbours as you love yourself. I am the Lord. And then from the Gospel as told by Matthew. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you, do not seek revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. And if someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. When someone asks you to get, sorry, when someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. You have heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now I tell you, Love your enemies enemies, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to shine on the bad and the good alike and gives rain to those who do good and those who do evil. Why should God reward you if you love only the people who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you speak only to your friends, have you done anything out of the ordinary? Even the pagans do that. You must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. May God help us to find fresh meaning in these words of Scripture. This morning's passages from Leviticus and Matthew are one of the few occasions, I think, that most people would prefer the passage in Leviticus to the passage in Matthew. The one in Leviticus, the law is a lot easier to follow. It's a nice list of do's and don'ts. And most of it's concerned with being honest, looking after your neighbor, and making sure everyone's okay. Whereas the words in, from the Sermon on the Mount are extreme. They take it beyond about just not being dishonest and kind of looking out for each other to, well, to levels that seem daft. 
which can sound like it's meaning for you to be abused and be everyone else's, I don't know, slave to an extent. And as for giving to everyone who asks, well, we've all been educated to know whether that's not a good reason. But we can't seriously be saying that we think Jesus is asking too much. What joins the two passages is in Leviticus it's telling us how to be holy as the Lord is holy. And in this passage in Matthew it's telling us how to be perfect as the Lord is perfect. How to be complete. But there's a subtle difference because in Leviticus being holy is how we love our neighbour. It's not in how we pray and how we worship even though these are written for disciples these are written for people of God. But as we know from stories like the Good Samaritan, it's kind of easy to put a limit on who our neighbours are. When we read this passage in Matthew, perfection is found in how we love our enemies. With that in mind, let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word to us can sometimes seem to set impossible standards, but it is our desire as we are here this morning, to understand and to know what you meant. Help us, Lord, to understand and to know how it is we are to live our lives in a way that would please you. Help us, Lord, to be better neighbours. And give us the strength to see it through. Amen. The passage from Matthew, in my mind, is one of the most dangerous in the Bible. In the worst sense, it's been used to justify tolerating all sorts of abuse and failing to stand up to defend those that cannot defend themselves. But it's also dangerous in a good sense because it can transform people's lives. And I would like to think it can also transform society. But we cannot ignore what I would say is maybe the wrong way of reading this. See, if we turn the other cheek every time someone hits us, If we do not resist the evil person, if we cling on to the idea that love hopes all things, we can lead ourselves to believing that what the Lord's telling us to do is just stand there and take it. That that when we're attacked, we should just allow ourselves to be attacked. Maybe what's more concerning is that when people have persisted in situations of abuse, whether they themselves have allowed themselves to be abused because love hopes all things. Now, whilst what we're going to talk about this morning is ways that transform people's lives, there is no promise here that if you never challenge someone's behavior, that somehow they will become a better person. Everybody's situation is different. And whilst I would want to reassure you and say to you, as I was saying to the children just a few moments ago, that when we are in difficult situations, it's really, it is good to remember how much the Lord loves us and how special we are to him. Please also remember you are not alone, that we are part of a body. And that if you are in a difficult situation and you don't know what the right thing is to do, or maybe a situation at work or at home is leaving you in a difficult place, then please talk to someone. Please seek help. There is nothing in either of these passages that ever says that when life is difficult, you cannot talk to someone. Maybe the first 
misunderstanding, it would help to clarify, is when it says do not resist an evil person, it is not saying that when we are attacked, we just need to lie there and accept what's going to happen. The word for not resisting an evil person is a continuing verb. Grammar isn't my speciality, but in that sense, it's a continuing action. It's a state of mind. And this whole passage is talking about not hardening your heart to the extent that someone is as good as dead to you. That you will have nothing to do for them, with them, and as far as you're concerned, they're beyond hope. They will never change, and therefore, they just don't exist. That's what it is to resist an evil person. It's to cut them out of your life. Whereas what the Lord is hoping for is that if we follow these words, show that there is a different way to live, that none of us are beyond hope, that none of us can be recon- are beyond reconciliation, that none of us are beyond changing. That doesn't take away from how extreme Jesus' words are. If we start with the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this was always used in a legal context. This wasn't talking about, you know, vigilante roaming the streets. But the original context was quite a harsh one. If we read the original phrase in Exodus, you have two men that are fighting, and in their fighting, one of them hits a woman that was pregnant, and she miscarries. And it goes on to say that the husband of that wife can then demand anything he wants from the man that caused the miscarriage up to and including his life. But there is that caveat, as the court allows. And the court is told later not to be lenient and not to be too harsh. They are to treat every case as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's the same if someone brought false witness. If someone brought a false witness and accused you of doing something horrendous, whatever punishment they were hoping you would receive, they are then to receive themselves. Because that's seen as justification. That's seen as perfectly valid. And so Jesus incites this law and he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That if you are wronged, you have the right to demand that suitable retribution is made. But Jesus turns that over and says, no, if someone hits you on the cheek, let them hit you on the other cheek also. But we're left with the question, surely that can't be right. That can't be right that if a crime is committed against us, that we should just let it go, as if nothing had happened. He carries on with the court case, where the man, an individual, is taken to court, and they literally lose the shirt off their back. And whilst they've taken the shirt off their back, they take their cloak off too. Well, at that point, they only wore two garments. The person would now be stood there naked. They would have nothing on at all, and they would go home naked. And unlike today, where many of us will have several clothes in our cupboards, they wouldn't. They have exposed themselves. This just sounds ridiculous. If we think about it literally, if we take it in this kind of context. And even though we can say it's, but it's more to do with not returning insult for insult, it's more about not returning injury for injury. But it does go that step further. Because if someone hits me, it's one thing for me to not hit them back. But it's another thing for me to stand there and say, hit me again. 
It seems bizarre. I'm not sure that in our thoughts this morning we will come up with all the answers. But I hope that in our thinking we will maybe start to see how this can start to apply in our own lives. Because one thing that Jesus is hitting on, one of the things that Jesus is really getting at, last week we looked at how we treat other people. But the reality is, how we treat other people is often a reflection on how we've been treated. And how other people treat us often tells us more about how they've been treated. Being a school teacher for many years, the saddest thing is knowing that those that are abusive and bullies and such like in the senior school were the ones that were bullied and abusive in junior school. The ones that end up in court for how they've treated other people were often treated badly themselves before they got there. It's a vicious circle. And it can start with just returning insult for insult. And then it becomes returning fist for fist. And then it becomes gangs against gangs. And it gets worse and worse. In its simplest sense, it's saying, we have a choice. It's a vicious circle. We can carry on being part of this circle and keep treating other people the way they treat us. Or we can let it stop. And let it stop with us. Either we can be part of the problem and perpetuate the situation, or we can be part of the solution. Though that doesn't take away from how extreme this seems. If I could give a couple of illustrations, and forgive me for using the first one from fiction. I'm always very wary of using stories from fiction, because they are just that. What happens is the decision of the author. But in this case, the story is based on a much, much older true story, even though it's a very, very popular film now. And it's that scene from Les Mis that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Now, the story has been borrowed. It goes right back to the third century. But you may remember in the, in the story, right near the beginning, there's a very important scene. Jean Valjean has been in jail. He was originally sent to a basic labor camp for five years, stealing bread to feed his nephews and nieces. He ends up being there for 19 years because he got into fights and he tried to escape. And he's released, not completely, but he's released on parole. He eventually comes to a monastery, and the Monsignor takes him in. And gives him, they clean him, they look after him, they give him hospitality, and they treat him very well. But Jean Valjean, in response, goes to steal what he can find that's precious, a lot of the silver. And he steals it, and he grabs the sack, and he disappears off. And he gets caught. When he was taken back, those of you will know the story will know this part very well. And the guards bring him before the Monsignor. Monsignor turns and says, no, no, he didn't steal these things from me. I gave them to him. But then he does that bit that's a bit more. And then he picks up the two candlesticks and says, but brother, you forgot to take these with you as well. The story then follows Valjean and goes on to show what a wonderful philanthropist he became because of this one good deed he then became someone who did many good deeds though the story is not that simple because alongside you have Javert who it doesn't matter how many good deeds he receives continues to be legalistic but it's the actions of the Monsignor that's worth considering he had been wronged he had been stolen from but his concern for Valjean was greater And in this case, his generosity 
was greater than that which was stolen. It's very difficult to steal from someone who desires to give things to you. In the same way, it is very difficult to be used by someone who desires to serve. If your generosity is greater than what people want to take, then it's difficult to take offence when they help themselves. If your desire to serve others is greater than the level to which they want to use you, then it's difficult to feel used because you're taking pleasure in, being ser- in serving. But there's maybe another case where I've seen this taken even further. You'll presume I'd be, fam- be familiar with Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu, who amazingly called P.W. Berta his brother when P.W. Berta was the person enforcing apartheid in 1980 South Africa. But what comes to surprise of many people is Desmond Tutu is not a pacifist. That the person that founded the Desmond Tutu Peace Centers, who still even now acts to intercede in certain situations, believes there are times when violence is necessary. He got into trouble in the 1980s when he stood up at a big rally in Mozambique and said as much and said, you know, I will tell you when the time for violent resistance and revolution is necessary. But it never happened. Desmond Tutu is quite clear that he is not a pacifist, but he describes himself as a lover of peace. But his love of peace is so great that it is greater than any violent situation he's been in and it's greater than any abuse that he himself has seen. And this is a man who he and his family were stretched at the side of the road, were imprisoned and beaten. Now he's aware he didn't suffer the worst of the cases. But his love for peace was greater than the abuse he suffered. And therefore that love for peace meant he never ever faced a situation where he thought violence was necessary. And even today, he still argues that he's never found that situation. It was his desire for peace and reconciliation that was behind the thinking of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, when those that came and were honest about their acts could be forgiven rather than punished. And those that had been sinned against could forgive. I would hope to think that no one here has ever suffered a great grievance that someone has performed some horrendous criminal act against them, but sadly, I expect some of you have. You may have seen some people's lives ruined as they're always trying to get some sort of resolution, but they think that resolution is founded by constantly inflicting punishment upon the other person. And it doesn't matter how much the other person suffers or punishes, or is punished, they never find that peace. Yet there are many testimonies from people that have learned to forgive. Who still feel the pain. But in their forgiveness have found the peace that they were looking for. Choosing not to perpetuate the circle of violence. Choosing not to perpetuate the insults and the litigation. But choosing instead to break that circle. But something this passage doesn't tell us is why do we have enemies in the first place? See, in the the passage we looked at last week, it says, if you've offended your brother, go and sort it out. Go and say sorry. Go and tell them what you've done wrong and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. It goes further to say that if it gets to the stage that someone is taking you to court, try and make peace with them before you get there. 
settle out of court in other terms. But the reality is we still have enemies that aren't always of our own making. We still have people that will act towards us in ways that we don't like. And in those situations it can be very hard because you don't deserve, well, no, we don't always deserve how people treat us. Sometimes when society get themselves into hot up and get themselves stuck and we end up with situations in war, we demonize the opposition. The country that our country is fighting against becomes almost like an animal to us. It is no longer human. One story that's inspired me is the story of the Ten Booms, who some of you may know from reading The Hiding Place, which is Corrie Ten Boom's record of when her family hid Jews in, occupied, in the occupied Netherlands during the Second World War. They were caught and they were arrested. And they went to various prison camps. But the thing that struck me, and I use these stories because they are exceptional, is one time Corrie and her sister Betsy were stood in rank and file because they'd all been made to go out in parade. And one of the guards took umbrage with one of the other female prisoners a few rows ahead and beat her and whipped her and attacked her horrendously. The guard was so far away that Corrie could whisper to her sister and say, looking at the woman that was being beaten, can't we do something after the war? Can't we set up homes to love and care for these people? Betsy's response was that she prayed for such, to be able to do such a thing every night. That she could show these people that love was stronger than hate and anger. It wasn't until later that Corrie realized that while she was looking at the woman that was being beaten, her sister Betsy was looking at the guard. Because in Betsy's mind, it was, guard, it was the guard that was the prisoner. She was trapped by hate and anger. And for some reason, Betsy had compassion on her. She could see that this was a guard, and it was a woman guard in this case, who was suffering because of the attitudes in her heart. Sadly, Betsy didn't survive the war, but Corrie Ten Boom took up that vision and did travel the world on both sides of many conflicts, setting up homes for people to recuperate from the effects of war. For people to learn that love is better than hate and anger. And this included going to Germany and visiting the people that had imprisoned her. The reason why we know these cases are they are exceptional. Let's be honest, it's not the norm. But also, we are quite fortunate. We don't live in a war-torn country. We don't live in a country where one of us is likely to get beaten by the police or the guards as we go down the road. We have relative freedoms. Our enemies tend to be more the person that says something that hurt us. I have to be honest that my enemies tend to be those that upset my wife or children. And at some point, at least internally, if someone's upset my wife or children, I will want to kill them. That will be my thought. That will be what goes through my head. That If I get my hands on them, I'm going to let them know what they've done. That's my natural reaction. And at times like that, I am grateful because there are many psalms that I can then turn to that say, it's actually okay to go to the Lord and say, God, I am absolutely furious at this. My reaction is I want to rip their... Now, at this point, I'd like to say I'm not in the habit of laying hands on anyone, but it doesn't stop me wanting to. Our enemies 
sometimes can be enemies for the most innocuous reasons. If we do take anything from this passage and wonder how we can apply it in our lives, how can we react to that person that offends us, that person that upsets us, that person at work that rubbishes what we do and doesn't listen to what we have to say? Maybe I could offer one more story. I'm sorry it's another story from the war, but I think it's quite useful. I have a friend of mine who's from a Brethren family. His family for generations have been members of the Brethren Evangelical Movement. But historically, they're also a family of conscientious objectors, going right back to the First World War when you could first be a conscientious objector. But one of his, and I don't know if it was his dad's cousin or uncle or such thing, decided in the Second World War that he was going to fight. And he was based in Egypt where there was a curfew. And he was out there one night and suddenly this man came out from a side alley and he did what any soldier would do. He had a gun in his hands, he picked up the gun and he pointed it at the man. The man, in his reaction, dropped what he was carrying and pointed his both hands up to the air. As he did this, he pointed up to a sign. And the sign was the church that he had just come out of. This was the church's deacon. The prayer meeting had run on and he was locking up. But for my friend's relative, that shocked him. Because back home, he had done that so many times. He himself had been the person locking up the church after the prayer meeting that had run on a bit too much. But what shocked him more is because he was in that state of ready to attack, he nearly shot a completely innocent man. After that, he couldn't fight anymore, and he did ask to be reassigned and went to work for the ambulance corps. Now, I know that story raises many issues, and maybe asks, raises more questions than answers. But how many times have we been in situations where if we'd allowed ourselves to react the way we wanted to, if we had been carrying a gun, how many people in our lives would now be walking around with injuries? How many people have hurt us and offended us so much that we wanted to fight back? And thankfully, we didn't carry weapons. So we didn't. This is a difficult passage, and the examples I've given are quite extreme. And thankfully, most of our daily lives don't face extreme situations. But maybe if we take on board the idea that we are not to be part of the continuing circle of insulting, injury, and aggression, and that we ask the Lord to help us to mean that it stops with us, that by treating our enemies differently to the way that they used to be treated, By showing them that we can still love them and have hope for them, even though they may not have any hope or love in themselves, that we would be transforming their lives. Maybe by saying hello to that person that we always ignore. Maybe by asking someone how they are, when to be honest we know we're going to get a gruff answer, but still showing them somehow that we care knowing that they won't necessarily be very pleasant in response. Is it possible for us to love someone more than their hate for us? Is it possible to we want to serve more than people want to use us? For some people, these are impossible ideals. 
But I think if we learn how to put these into our daily lives, when that extreme situation came along, the one that we're never quite sure how we'd deal with, the one that we fear would happen but hope never does, then hopefully on that occasion we would know what the right answer is. But like last week, in many ways when Jesus is talking about his kingdom, this is the king telling us what it's like. This is the one who loved us whilst we were his enemies, who came, was rejected, spat on, abused, left naked, tortured, and all the worst case scenarios. Not for his benefit, but for ours. He came so that we could love. And he went through this so that we could be reconciled and transformed. He did this so that we could change and live a different life. We may not be perfect, and our emotions do get the better of us sometimes. But let us ponder and think, how much are we able to join the Lord in his work in bringing that hope and that love and that peace into other people's lives so that they too know there is a different way to live, there is a different way to act, and there's a different way to be. Amen. We come together as a church in our prayers for others and our prayers for each other. So let us pray. Merciful God, we come together in this place and at this time to give thanks for all your countless blessings and mercies that you have showered upon us, so many of which we take for granted and so many of which we ignore. We pray for your guidance in our worship to open our hearts and to open our minds so that we may know your will for us. Guide in God, you have shown us the way. You have shown us how to love and to live through your Son, Jesus Christ. Guide us in how we live with each other in our faith communities, how we work together to live out your will for us in this place. Guide us in how we live with each other in our daily lives, in our communities, and with the wider world, so that others through us may see and come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. God of the, extra, of the other cheek and of the extra mile, guide us in how we live out your Christian message. Give us the vision to see, the ears to hear, and open hearts to love and to live out your will for us in this world. Give us the strength to follow your way rather than our way. Give us the humility to know that all of our resources come from you. And give us the compassion to love others as you first loved us. Caring God and God of reconciliation, we bring to you now those who are troubled in any way, however small and insignificant their concerns may seem to us. We bring to you those parts of the world torn by conflict and strife, those parts of the world where there is simmering tension and an uneasy truce, those parts of the world where everyday existence is precarious and where the struggle to merely survive can seem an insurmountable hurdle. 
We remember them in our prayers. Help us to remember them in our actions. We bring to you those who are troubled, but we never hear about in the news bulletins. Those who face conflict or strife in the workplace, in the home, or within their own hearts and minds. We remember them in our prayers. Help us to remember to be sensitive to their needs. And we bring to you each other, each with our own thoughts, our own daily challenges, our own needs. Help us to remember each other in all that we do in this place. Forgiving God, we bring to you our thanks. We bring to you our prayers. We offer to you our worship. We offer to you our praise. Forgiving God, we offer to you ourselves with all our faults and failures. Forgive us for the forgotten promises, the careless remarks, the thoughtless deeds, and help us to love one another as you first loved us. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. May the words of our Lord Jesus Christ be clear in our hearts and our heads. May the Spirit of God be at work in us to bring us hope and encouragement in the week ahead. May our Heavenly Father rejoice and be glad in the actions of us, his children. And may we know his delight in our lives. Amen.